When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ever since Terry was a scabby-kneed little girl, she knew she was destined for greatness. It was God's will, after all. Even when the good Lord started her off on such a difficult road, setting her up as a poor little orphan girl growing up on the wrong side of her dusty little Texas town, she still knew she would attain something greater one day. She just needed to stay on the path the Lord set before her. Much later in life, she would go on to tell her followers how it all began. She was born on March 21st, 1938 in Fort Stockton, Texas. As she put it, she grew up picking cotton by her mother's side under the scorching heat of the Texas sun. It was the only thing they could do to make ends meet because Terry's father drank up all their money. She was a lonely child. She would have had a baby sister except the Lord took the poor girl during childbirth. It wasn't long after that when the good Lord took her mother too. Little Terry could only stand by and watch as her mother gasped away her last few breaths to tuberculosis. She died in 1947. This left Terry in the care of her abusive alcoholic father. But that didn't last either. By the time she turned nine, she found herself being dumped off in an orphanage. It was a terrible childhood. One that left Terry Lee yearning for something to fill those cold, quiet places inside her. When she was four years old, she found it. That was when the Lord first gifted Terry with the revelations about her destiny. This glimmer of hope was like a tiny flame inside her. One that would grow and grow to become a raging inferno of spiritual awakening. One of Terry's earliest memories was as she lay under a shade tree listening to the hot dry wind rustle the leaves, when a vision of three men in splendid robes appeared before her. These three angelic beings told Terry Lee she could be anything she wanted to be, do anything she wanted to do. All she had to do was set her sights on that goal, and it was hers for the taking. They told her what a special little girl she was and just how unique it was that she, of all people, had the gift that allowed her to see them. They told her she still had a hard road ahead of her. But on the toughest of days, all she needed to do was think about God and think about His plan for her. And Terry would know no matter how difficult life might be, no matter what obstacles were placed before her, it would all turn out right in the end. No one could take that away from her. Not the older boys and girls who picked on her and called her names. Not the well-to-do adults with their fancy clothes and better-than-thou attitudes who whispered about her behind her back. Not even her father, who was so miserable and terrifying to be around when he came home with the smell of whiskey on his breath. For the next few years, those three old masters would appear to Terry periodically and share more secrets of the universe with her. 
Then, when Terry was nine years old and living in a Lutheran orphanage in Round Rock, she learned even more about her destiny. She had another vision, this time of a German nun who taught her to pray and to meditate, and to explain to her the way the universe really worked. The nun helped Terry along her path. She taught her about the major elements, earth, air, fire, water, and ether. The nun also told her about the Akashic Records, the spiritual library of information that contains the details of your soul and its journey. These records contain all the information about you, your past lives, your present incarnation, and your future possibilities. Terry learned that when she meditated, she could send her spirit on a great journey. It was there in the spiritual realm that Terry discovered she was the reincarnation of St. Teresa of Avila, a legendary mystic from the Roman Catholic Church. According to legend, St. Teresa experienced visions just like the ones bestowed upon Terry by the Holy Trinity of magical beings. Belief in reincarnation was a major comfort to Terry. She knew now that her mother and sister would be reborn into some glorious new form and that all the bullies who picked on her would continue to live in an endless cycle of torment. When Terry was 11, she was adopted by a Dallas couple who had lost their birth daughter to tuberculosis. The couple was kind to her at first, and they gave her two special gifts. One was their last name, making her Terry Lee Benson. The other was the first normal home she'd ever known in her life. But Terry's new mother was controlling, and she didn't understand what a special free spirit she was. When Terry was in junior high school, she met a handsome 18-year-old boy named John Wilder, and she fell for him instantly. Her adoptive mother didn't approve. He was too old for her, she said. He was nothing but a no-good thug, she said. A high school dropout with no real prospects. But Wilder got a job as a truck driver earning 85 cents an hour. And that was plenty good enough for Terry, who was growing tired of her mother's smothering ways. She and Wilder married on May 2, 1953 in Durant, Oklahoma, just one month after Terry Lee's 15th birthday. Oklahoma was the closest state that would allow a girl her age to get married. After that, Terry dropped out of high school and 18 months later she had her first child, a girl they named Kathy. A second child, Kenneth, was born in 1958. Then their third, Virginia, came along in 63. At first, the couple lived on a farm near Redbird Airport. Terry occupied her time gardening and raising the children. It was a good life, a quiet life. And yet, through it all, Terry still felt that flame inside her, still flickering, but slowly dying out. Terry wanted more out of life. She could feel that flame inside her wanting so badly to be set free. It wanted to grow and to burn, to light up her soul with the heat of the sun. As time went on, the couple moved to a three-bedroom house in Farmer's Branch. It wasn't long after that when the marriage began to fall apart. John Wilder didn't know exactly what went wrong. He just knew there was a part of Terry that would never truly be his. She had her own path, 
a strangeness about her with all her talk of spirituality and past lives. He tried to indulge her as best he could, allowing her to buy mail-order books on reincarnation, hypnotism, and the writings of Edgar Cayce. But as Terry took up with groups of high school kids and the wealthy board housewives at the local country club, John could only stand by and watch her drift farther and farther away from him. Terry was on a path, after all. One she insisted God set before her when she was just a little girl. It was a path that would lead her to wealth and influence. As more people flocked to her seeking spiritual guidance, she would grow to become what many described as one of the most successful cult leaders in Dallas throughout the 1970s. Word spread quickly about Terry's abilities to see the past and future, to astral project her spirit, to communicate with the dead and to heal people with her touch. And yet, despite all her magical abilities, several of her closest followers would die under strange and unexpected circumstances. And to this day, there are those who think Terry Hoffman willed it to happen. I'm Nate Hale your spiritual guide on this strange podcast journey. And this is The Conspirators. By the time Terry and her first husband, John Wilder, moved to the North Dallas suburb of Farmer's Branch, she was already well on her way to building her cult following. During the late 60s, Terry had moved on from just reading books on psychics and hypnotism to leading her own weekly evening meditation classes. From there, she started an even more intensive group called Conscious Development of Body, Mind, and Soul. Terry began selling her written lessons through the mail order. The first correspondence began, This is your very first lesson. It is yours in a special way since the knowledge contained within it is sacred, secret, and mysterious. This information has been treasured and carefully guarded since ancient times, for knowledge gives its possessor power. By being exposed to the teachings of the masters, you will not only become aware of the truths which others rarely possess, You will also learn how to use and control energies few have mastered. Among the things Terry taught her early followers was her own interpretation of the Hindu concept of karma. In Terry's explanation, a person's physical deeds on earth directly affected their prospects for reincarnation in a higher spiritual realm. Those who experienced misfortune had obviously done something wrong in a previous life and got what they deserved. And if you were really, really bad... Then the next time around, you'd be reincarnated to something particularly lowly, like an insect or a rat. In Terry's teachings, the lines between life and death blurred together. Your physical body was just a shell for your soul, and that was the part of you that she could make stronger. It was essential, she said, that you seek to attain a spiritual balance. Taking charge of your emotional and spiritual well-being and eliminating so-called negative energies, which could prove deadly if you didn't act swiftly. The main goal in life, Terry taught, was to evolve your soul to the highest spiritual plane, so you could sit alongside God and the very same masters that appeared before her when she was a child. 
Much of what Terry was teaching wasn't anything unique. Throughout the 1970s and 80s, there were a number of popular New Age movements springing up throughout the United States, all teaching variations on similar themes. These New Age gurus were tapping into a counterculture of young people who had grown dissatisfied with most dominant religions. After they seemed incapable of providing answer to life's most difficult questions. The 70s and 80s were a turbulent time in the world. The Vietnam War was coming to an end. The Cold War was still raging. Watergate was ramping up. Divorce rates were skyrocketing. And a new breed of materialism had insinuated itself into every aspect of society. Terry's lessons offered a hopeful message full of forgiveness to her followers. She taught her people they could be comfortable with wealth and that they didn't need to feel regretful for seeking personal pleasure. She said she got her start in the late 1960s after she helped a troubled young man kick his drug addiction through meditation and prayer. This young man begged Terry to spread her message of love and meditation to his friends. And soon she was holding free weekly meditation sessions to about 20 area high school students. These students would sit around cross-legged on prayer mats, really just old bath mats or scraps of carpet, and listened in rapt attention as Terry shared the secrets of the universe with them. She told them about the Akashic Record and how she could lead them on meditative journeys. During some of these meditative states, Terry would focus on some of the couples in attendance and determine whether they were really soulmates or not. A few young couples who thought they were in love left Terry's prayer sessions heartbroken after learning they weren't really meant for each other. She spoke for hours to them in her twangy Texas accent about everything from money to sex to ghosts. Terry had a friendly Brady Bunch mom quality about her that made her seem relatable to the masses. She also offered individual consultations, for an hourly fee of course during which she would advise the willing participant on how they should be conducting every aspect of their lives. Terry told her followers how she could ask to protect her spirit. She said one time she shocked her husband in the middle of the night when he woke to see her soul floating above the bed. On another occasion, her son Kenneth dislocated his thumb while out on a picnic. It was so bad you could see the bone bulging out against the skin. Rather than take the boy to a doctor... Instead, Terry healed him herself through meditation and spiritual energies. She told her followers she could protect them from harm just as easily. One evening, she told a student his girlfriend was destined to die in a car accident. But after Terry meditated and used her powers of protection, the accident never happened, and the girl lived. Terry even claimed that after Jimi Hendrix's tragic death, she was able to reach out to Jimmy's spirit, which was trapped on the astral plane and helped elevate him to the next level. During that meditation session, she swore Jimmy's soul was in the room with them. And she insisted that if everyone listened closely enough, they could hear his guitar. Every once in a while, someone would leave the group. Incidents like the one involving Jimi Hendrix made a few skeptics out of former believers. Terry also had an irritating habit of bragging about her worldly possessions even though she simultaneously insisted these things were immaterial to her followers. But even as some people left, there were always others ready to join. While all this was going on, Terry's own home life was rapidly deteriorating. She and John were arguing constantly about Terry's spiritual side hustle. 
John was disturbed by the amount of influence Terry exhibited over the young people that visited her. He also noticed Terry seemed to be getting awfully cozy with one of her followers in particular, a 20-year-old student named Glenn Cooley. On December 28, 1970, Terry finally filed for divorce on the grounds that John was impeding her spiritual growth. Things didn't go quite so smoothly for Terry, though, after that. Wilder and Terry's adoptive mother conspired to have her committed to Parkland Memorial Hospital for psychiatric evaluation. They convinced a judge that Terry posed a substantial risk of causing serious harm to herself or others. But eventually she was released and the divorce was granted on March 23, 1971. But Terry still ended up losing custody of her two younger children. She got remarried just four months later to Glenn Cooley. He dropped out of school at Terry's behest and the couple bought a house in North Dallas. Terry was 33 years old at the time. Along with selling mail-order printouts of her spiritual teachings, Terry also began selling crystals and handmade silver jewelry she claimed she was able to charge. With mystical properties for healing and protection, she began urging her followers to buy her jewelry for their own good. The bigger and more expensive the item, the more protection you got. You could tell just how deeply some of Terry's followers believed by just how much of her magical bling they wore. One of Terry's most devoted followers, who was also one of her best magic jewelry customers, was a woman named Sandy Cleaver. On the surface, it didn't seem like Sandy and Terry had much in common. Sandy grew up wealthy after inheriting a sizable trust fund from her family in Alabama, while Terry grew up dirt poor in Texas. But the two women still managed to find some common ground. For one thing, they both knew tragedy and loss at an early age. Terry's mother died of tuberculosis while Sandy's was committed to a mental institution when she was 12. Sandy's sister died in a car accident in 1961, while Terry consoled her by sharing how her sister died in childbirth. Sandy met her future husband, Chuck, when they were both students at DePaul University. They married the year they both graduated in 1960. And after that, the couple settled in Dallas, where Chuck got a high-paying job. In 1964, they had a daughter they named Susan Devereaux Cleaver in honor of Sandy's deceased sister. Then in 1966, Sandy's father died in a crash while he was piloting his private plane. The loss devastated Sandy, who wished more than anything she could talk to her father one more time in order to tie up loose ends. After that, Sandy began turning to the supernatural in the hope she could get some answers from the great beyond. She began reading books by Edgar Cayce and about transcendental meditation. She dabbled in vegetarianism and homeopathic medicine. She ordered all sorts of pills from a homeopathic doctor in Mexico who claimed his natural cures could fix everything that ailed her. At one point, Sandy was taking as many as 20 different pills a day. Chuck became so concerned that he stole a bunch of the pills and had them tested. It turned out they were all just placebos. The doctor who did the testing warned Chuck that in his opinion, even though the pills were harmless, they were just a symptom of a much deeper problem. He told Chuck his wife was showing signs of delusional behavior and other serious psychological issues. One afternoon, Chuck came home to find Sandy with her suitcases packed about to take their daughter Devereaux on a flight to San Diego. She told him there was a homeopathic doctor there with a special machine he could put the girl in that would tune out the world's bad vibrations. 
Chuck was furious and told her the only way he was taking Devereaux anywhere was over his dead body. On another night, Chuck awoke to discover his little girl burning up from a fever. Chuck wanted to rush her to a pediatrician, but Sandy threw a fit, insisting she could cure Devereaux's fever through meditation and incense. Chuck and Sandy argued through the night until Chuck finally grew fed up and carried his daughter out of the house at 5 a.m. He drove around North Dallas for two hours until the pediatrician opened up. It turned out his daughter had scarlet fever. After that, Chuck began staying home more often for his daughter's protection. This only caused more arguments between him and Sandy. One such fight grew so heated that Sandy picked up a butcher knife and began waving it around. She told Chuck sometimes she thought Devereaux would be a lot better off in heaven. Chuck blamed a lot of his wife's erratic behavior directly on his friendship with Terry Lee. Chuck thought Terry was a fraud. He hated how much time Sandy was spending at Terry's house for their meditation sessions. Chuck begged Sandy not to drag their daughter into Terry's conscious development group, but Sandy insisted the group could help eliminate all the bad vibrations that threatened their daughter's spiritual well-being. Sandy worshipped Terry, and she couldn't understand why Chuck was unable to see just how special she truly was. Terry was the reincarnation of St. Teresa, she said. She could astral project her spirit. She could even cure cancer. Whenever Chuck complained about how all this was affecting Devereaux, Sandy turned it around on him and said all his negative energies were causing their daughter real harm. All that negativity could create bacteria and viruses that caused physical illness. Things grew more strained when Chuck found out Sandy wrote Terry a check for $3,000. Over time, Sandy began making all sorts of strange announcements, like she could turn wine back into grape juice, or that she was the reincarnation of a high priestess of Atlantis. In December 1970, Sandy filed for divorce on the grounds that Chuck was standing in the way of her spiritual growth. The divorce was finalized on April 22, 1971. Custody of Devereaux became a bitter sticking point during the divorce. Chuck began gathering evidence that Sandy was an actual physical danger to Devereaux. He told his lawyers about all Sandy's dabblings with the occult and about how she would do things like drop the girl off at a neighbor's house while she went to one of her meditation sessions, then forget to come back and pick her up. Both Chuck and Sandy's lawyer warned him that even though he had an excellent case to receive full custody, they worried Sandy might actually harm their daughter if she lost. Chuck eventually agreed to allow Sandy visitation privileges. Terry later claimed that Chuck was after Sandy's money. But lawyers for both sides agreed money wasn't Chuck's motivation. Under the divorce agreement, all he kept were his personal property and a 1971 Mercedes. He also insisted a provision be added to the divorce agreement, requiring Sandy to have Devereaux treated by licensed physicians in Texas. Meanwhile, Sandy became Terry's closest confidant in the meditation group. She paid for her and Glenn Cooley's Hawaiian honeymoon and even went along on the trip, taking Devereaux with her despite a court order stating she couldn't take her out of the state. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, 
you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Sandy helped Terry build conscious development into the most popular metaphysical community in Dallas. Sandy kept the group's books, helped make and sell jewelry, and even bought the group a printing press. She would go on to be named the group's secretary-treasurer. People flocked to conscious development for all sorts of reasons. Many joined simply based on Terry's charisma alone. Others were seeking relief from physical pain or emotional trauma, while others simply wanted answers to deep philosophical questions they hadn't found anywhere else. As the group's numbers swelled, Terry selected 25 of her most devoted followers, including Sandy Cleaver, and made them teachers. This simultaneously raised Terry even higher up in the group's eyes. The group began referring to her as the Anamataji, or the Divine Revelator. On one occasion, a group member related a story in which she'd had a close call with a plane that nearly crashed. Terry informed the teacher she was the one who saved her through her mystical protection abilities. Terry met weekly with her inner circle of trusted teachers. She revealed to them that they were chosen for a higher purpose. Together, they would fight the forces of evil. Terry called them the White Brotherhood and that they had been chosen by the very same masters that appeared to Terry when she was four. They were selected to battle the evil Black Brotherhood, also known as the Black Lords. These Black Lords existed primarily on the astral plane. In order to defeat them, each of the members of the White Brotherhood would have to drag the spirits of the Black Lords down to the pits of hell, where their souls and lower bodies would be disintegrated. But there were also other, even more deadly perils they faced. Some of these enemies were known as the Black Overlords, who were even more powerful and couldn't be dissolved in the pits of hell. Instead, they had to be taken to an electromagnetic dissolving cave. There were also hideous gargoyle-like creatures known as Garbans. These creatures stood six feet tall, had sharp beaks, and were covered in slime. These creatures were so powerful they even had the ability to touch someone in the physical realm and leave slime on their bodies. The only way to kill a Garbon was to visualize wrapping the creature in barbed wire, then stabbing it to death. Each week, the members of the White Brotherhood gathered to do psychic battle with the Black Lords. They were armed with metal rods, which served as symbolic swords. They would stand in a circle with everyone facing out in all directions, so the Black Lords couldn't sneak up on them. Terry stood at the center of the circle. According to the stories Terry told, these meetings of the mystical Avengers were highly successful. They would meditate long into the night until the point came when Terry declared their battle to be a success. Think Batman going on patrol. But instead of Gotham City, the members of the White Brotherhood patrolled the psychic realm. But despite how successful they were at battling the forces of evil, sometimes there were casualties. When some teachers left the group, Terry told the others they must have become possessed by the Black Lords and were lost to them. Then on February 2nd, 1977, the group had their first physical casualty. That was the day Glenn Cooley was discovered dead. Cooley was raised in a devout Baptist household, and his parents never approved of his marriage to Terry. 
During the time they were married and even for a while after they divorced, Glenn worked for Terry in her jewelry business, which became incorporated as CD Gems. But once the psychic battles with the Black Lords began, Glenn confided in his parents that enough was enough. Terry and Glenn separated and the couple were officially divorced on January 27, 1977. Throughout the entire divorce, things remained so amicable that Glenn continued to work for Terry. Five days after the divorce was final, Glenn went to stay at a cabin his parents owned on Lake Grapevine to the northwest of the city. The next day, Terry claimed she found a handwritten last will and testament Glenn left for her in a safe granting her all his money and personal property. Terry later told police she and a couple other members of Conscious Development drove out to the cabin to check on Glenn, only to discover his body. He was lying dead in bed. A half-empty beer can stood on the nearby dresser. Foam dripped from his mouth. Two capsules were found in the bed with him after the body was moved. Blood tests during the autopsy revealed the presence of Librium and Valium in Glenn's system. The official cause of death was reported as a drug overdose. Terry told the police that her ex-husband seemed despondent in the days leading up to his death. But privately, she told the members of Conscious Development something much more sinister had occurred. Obviously, the Black Lords had gotten to poor Glenn. That was when Terry announced the group would have to try a new tactic in order to avoid the Black Lords poisoning their blood like they did to Glenn. The only way they could let this bad blood out was through the ancient art of bloodletting. During the group meeting where Terry announced this radical new tactic, Sandy Cleaver produced a bunch of syringes and needles much to the horrified group followers. Some conscious development members went along with the bloodletting, but not everyone. This was the final straw for a lot of group members. And pretty soon the cult's numbers dropped from more than 100 members to just a couple dozen. Around the same time, Sandy Cleaver began to look at her own daughter Devereaux with fear. After Terry told her the Black Lords had infected the now 14-year-old's blood. By December 1978, Devereaux had grown into a popular, normal teenage girl. She attended a private school in North Dallas. She wrote poetry. And she was also a school athlete, playing on both her middle school basketball team, as well as being a very good swimmer. But being a normal teenage girl, Devereaux also began telling everyone she disliked her mom's weird friends. This caused Terry Hoffman to declare Devereaux to be an enemy of the group. Clearly, the girl was possessed by the Black Lords. For much of 1978, Sandy remained distant from Devereaux. She told other members of Conscious Development she feared the dark forces in Devereaux were going to infect her own energies. Devereaux was deeply hurt by how little her mother wanted to be around her. Sandy never even attended any of her daughter's basketball games. Then in early 1979, Sandy asked Devereaux if she'd like to come along on a pre-wedding trip to Hawaii. She was planning on getting married to another conscious development member. Devereaux jumped at the chance. According to Sandy, the trio went on a picnic to a lagoon near Wailupe Peninsula, a place she had visited before. While Sandy's fiancé remained on shore, Sandy and Devereaux paddled out into the lagoon on a blue inflatable raft. Sandy later told authorities that while they were out there, a rogue wave suddenly knocked the raft over. The next thing she knew, Devereaux was missing. She told authorities she frantically dove into the water looking for her daughter, but couldn't find her anywhere. 
The girl's drowned body was discovered hours later, covered with cuts and bruises. As soon as Chuck learned his daughter was missing, he hopped on the next flight to Hawaii. When he arrived at the hospital, he was only a little surprised to see Terry was already there in Sandy's hospital room. While Chuck was gone, one of Terry's followers phoned his home to inform him she had discovered an important document, Devereaux's last will and testament. The idea that a 14-year-old girl would write a will seemed outlandish to everyone except members of conscious development. The handwritten letter described who would get all Devereaux's worldly possessions, including her basketball and her rock collection. It also said that Devereaux's $125,000 trust fund should go to Terry and Ben Johnson, her latest husband. That same day, a conscious development member rushed to the Republic Bank and handed the letter, along with a more formally worded will that was clearly not in a child's handwriting, to a bank vice president and demanded the money. The banker balked at the request and refused. Texas law states a minor can't write a legal will. When Chuck learned of the will, he was shocked. He was certain Sandy convinced Devereaux to write the letters because the girl was so desperate for her mother's affection. This also led Chuck to another even more horrifying thought. That maybe, just maybe, Sandy murdered her own daughter. Sandy broke off her engagement after she got out of the hospital. It wouldn't be long after she returned to Texas when tragedy struck again, which only brought Terry and Sandy even closer together. In August, Terry's 22-year-old son, Kenneth, died in a construction accident after he fell through a hole in a roof. But the unexpected deaths didn't stop there. Just two months after Devereaux's mysterious death, Sandy took out a $300,000 life insurance policy on herself. This was double the amount the insurance agent recommended. Terry was listed as a sole beneficiary. At the end of 1979, Sandy took things even further when she transferred ownership of her $180,000 home in North Dallas to Terry. She then began paying rent to Terry in exchange for being allowed to live there. Then on September 8, 1981, Sandy asked her housekeeper, Louise Watson, to accompany her on a six-day trip to Colorado. Sandy wanted to visit a parcel of land near Cripple Creek that was purchased for a conscious development retreat. 77-year-old Louise didn't want to go on the trip, but Sandy talked her into it. The two women rented a station wagon at the Denver airport and spent the night with Terry's sister in Colorado Springs. The following day, they set out on the road trip, only they never reached the retreat. Instead, Sandy Cleaver drove straight off a mountain in an area known as the Garden of the Gods. The lack of skid marks indicated to accident investigators that Sandy must have done so on purpose. The car tumbled nearly 500 feet into a ravine. The two women were thrown from the wreckage, and their broken bodies were located the following day. Two days after the accident, Terry arrived at the hospital to claim the remains. She also had with her signed wills for both Sandy and Louise, both of whom named Terry the executor of their estates. Terry was able to cash the $300,000 life insurance check she got from Sandy's death, but things were a lot more difficult when she attempted to claim the remainder of Sandy's estate. Two months after Sandy's death, her brother, Croom Beatty IV, filed papers contesting the will. His attorney was a former criminal prosecutor named James Barklow, 
and he knew how suspicious the circumstances surrounding the deaths of Sandy Cleaver, Louise Watson, Sandy's daughter Devereaux, and Glenn Cooley looked. For someone supposedly granted with magical protection abilities, Terry Hoffman had a suspicious way of leaving dead bodies in her wake. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. This is part one of a two-part episode on the conscious development movement. In the next episode, we'll get even further into the many strange deaths that surrounded the cult. I have a couple new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Harry and Gwen for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder that patrons of the show get access to all sorts of neat bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron of the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the conspirators is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical rankings and helps spread the good word to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, you can find the conspirators on Spotify, Stitcher, and most of the other places you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, you can check us out on social media. Reach out and follow us on our Facebook page, Twitter, or Instagram. You can even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. I love hearing from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time. But before we go, I also want to take a moment to tell you about another podcast I think you'll enjoy. As a true crime fan, let me tell you about another show that I've been binging lately, Morning Cup of Murder. You might remember those desktop calendars that would tell you all about what happened on that day in history? Well, Morning Cup of Murder took that idea and turned it into a daily podcast that now has over 850 episodes that dive into serial killers, cults, cold cases, murders, and more. Morning Cup of Murder is the best way to start your day because each episode is less than 10 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to while having that first cup of coffee or tea in the morning. Morning Cup of Murder can be heard everywhere you listen to podcasts. Check out Morning Cup of Murder today.